You are the master of your reality. This is even more true in relation to the government. Democracy doesn't just happen. It takes participation. Governments need participation and feedback from their citizens. Join Rob Hutchinson for Dear Parliament, where you get to understand the issues and engage directly with government. Dear Parliament is every Wednesday at midday, only on 101.9 High FM. On the line, we have Nick Hudson, Chairman of Panda, who has been extremely vocal and influential in the uh, during these COVID times, and he has presented us with facts which are often not uh, in, in line with government thinking and contradict the, the general narrative. Good day, Nick. Welcome to the show. I trust you well. Hello, Rob, and hello to your listeners. I am well, thank you, and yourself. Fantastic. Cannot cannot complain. Now, Nick, uh, first off, I must compliment you and your your team's valiant efforts to present the facts and info with a with a good uh, detail and you know notion to dispel the fear, you know, fear that emotional wreck of reason to to the public. I can only imagine it hasn't hasn't been a smooth ride at all. No, it hasn't. It's been a a, a very uh, rocky year as we've encountered the incredible levels of censorship and deception that have been practiced by government and the media and social media. It's really quite an extraordinary situation that we've we find the world in at the moment. Absolutely it, it, it is. And that you know that's you know, when it comes to accurate policy decisions and uh, the public knowledge on how to actually participate in that, um it's we have to Realize what is good data and what is bad data and how to differentiate be, between that. I was chatting earlier on about the, the, uh, death of critical thinking within the public, probably due to our unsatiable lust for short bits of, of information. We don't often read past headlines and, and, and such. And how, how do we actually, as ordinary members of the public, uh, distinguish between what's good data and, and bad data? Well, I suppose the first thing that's worth pointing out is the extent to which fear gets in the way of critical thinking. When you deliberately take a population and feed them a constant message of fear, employing behavioral scientists to maximize that fear, writing papers about how best to drive that narrative as hard and as fast as possible, what you do is you disable critical thinking. And so even if you start with a population that has a proportion who are able to address the facts and to reason through what they're seeing, you end up with a population that's unable to do so if you've terrorized everybody. And that's exactly what's happened in this epidemic. Central messages about the the actual risk that is faced have been hidden, deliberately hidden from the public. The risk has been massively misrepresented and deliberately so. And we find ourselves in a situation where there's a kind of collective uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that uh, pervades the society at the moment. That is indeed true. I think it is a case of of PTSD. And I was just actually... Uh, laughing there because my my son recently did a, a little you know, brief little essay in school about the origins of PTSD and it it came from the the war times in the trenches and and shell shock and and so on and you know 
it's interesting to note that government has presented this as a war from with an invisible enemy and is using all these exact same terms to uh, try and relate it to the a world war type situation, which is really, in my opinion, once you're presented with with the facts, is isn't a ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous notion. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right, and all these. This terminology that is warlike, such as the front line, you know, the front line doctors and so on, mm. it's all deliberately chosen to um, represent the situation as being far more malign and dangerous than than it really is. Yeah, which is which begs the question as as, as to why they are doing this. What is what is the hidden agenda and who stands to gain from from this? There's a lot of speculation around that, but. Um, I'm sure you you had to have the uh, somewhat near facts as to what is really behind this all. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's it, the why complex. The why the why issue is very complex. Um, you know, the, there certainly is some element of criminality here and there, and and that's not uncommon in anything that involves public policy, as we know from the the Gupta years and. Um, the financial crisis before, um, you know, the, but the central issues are that there's been comprehensive censorship of any and all dissenting voices, um, and that have this. There's there hard versions of that kind of censorship where people are deplatformed for questioning the prevailing narrative, um, and that's done under the the sort of rubric of um, keeping people safe. Um, then there's soft censorship where, you know, for example, social media accounts are shadow banned where, you know, I, I might reply to somebody's post on Twitter and that post is hidden behind a message that says that my reply contains offensive language. And when you click on it and go through and it simply says, yes, you, you see very quickly what's going on. They're trying to make the entire voice something that is silenced and so that's the first one is this comprehensive censorship and then there's an, an unbelievable degree of capture of our public health inst institutions by a handful of players who have built up their funding lines into those institutions um, over many years and you see the same names cropping up all over the place and what happens then is it becomes almost impossible for the public health officials and scientists in those institutions to voice any opposition to the policy of those funding institutions. And that applies to nearly all of our mainstream scientists in this country. If they, if they disagreed with the narrative, they would be unable to say it without threatening their livelihoods. So you have a, another type of censorship operating by virtue of institutional capture. And then there's also very fertile ground in our culture. For decades now, our universities and even our schools have been teaching children and young people these notions of cancel culture, safety culture, relativism, which is the, the absence of any basis in, real, in reality for one's statements about the world, and critical theory, which is and, and comes in various flavors. There's critical gender theory and critical race theory, which is a deeply rationalist approach to understanding people and their identities. And then we have the problem that if you give politicians power, 
they're unlikely to want to relinquish it. And they are, in many cases, the employers of a lot of our scientists, so in, in effect, which adds to that whole censorship problem. And then the two remaining legs of this are a degree of propaganda that has been absolutely off the charts. People often forget what it was that first made them scared about the coronavirus. And I have to remind them of all those silly videos on um, social media and even in mainstream media, you know, the falling man in China, the smear department. <laughs> it was hilarious, yes. Yeah, just absolutely, when you look back on them, you know that that's not what happened in the epidemic, but people forget that it was those videos that made them scared. And it's clear now, with the benefit of hindsight, that that was just all completely false manufactured propaganda, and it spread like wildfire with human bots who probably on the payroll of the Chinese Communist Party boosting that information across you know, just many millions of social media accounts. And then the last element of this is there's a kind of culture in academia that sees almost all of our uh, academics buying into these extreme centralization, centralization motives, ideas, such ideas as um, the New World Order, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the Great Reset, the Sustainable Development Goals. These are all ideas which have would have the world centralizing control of all aspects of life in the hands of a few supranational authorities. And so it's a really toxic brew that comes together in creating and sustaining what is really an entirely false narrative when it comes to the coronavirus story. That definitely, that most definitely is. And it's, you know, if you look at it in, in such broad terms and uh, it does come across as, as a major conspiracy theory because it's got all the, the right elements there that is needed. And it's kind of presented in that way to, to make people go, oh, that's an easy route. It's, it's conspiracy theory, a few people behind it and uh, serving the interests of a few and turning us all into slaves and the new world order and, and so on. However, if you break it down into the individual parts and you know, analyze each one of, one of those, it becomes pretty clear that there's, there's, there is a global agenda behind this, this, this whole thing. And it is without doubt driven by, by fear and perpetuated uh, through the, the introduction of, of fear. And that's pretty much how I see the, the masks as as nothing more than a tool to perpetuate that, that fear, making the invisible visible on, on, on a daily, a daily basis within, within our lives. Um, yeah, you know, with that. Yeah. Um, the masks are a tool of propaganda, not anything that has any scientific basis. And I mean, if you take a look at the literature that purports to support the use of cloth masks to prevent viral spread, it is just ridiculous in terms of how, how shamefully weak it is. Uh, you know, at any other time, that stuff would not even make it into publication. It would be derided. It would be mocked and ridiculed. And there are some truly staggering tales of just downright silly papers that are published and then held up as the proof that these cloth masks work. Um, but I wanted to just pick up on your, your mention of the term conspiracy theory. I've been saying three things about 
this idea of a conspiracy. The first one is that I don't think there is a conspiracy. These are trends, widespread twen- trends that I've mentioned. And um, the second thing is that I wish there was a conspiracy because a conspiracy, you know, three people in a dark room plotting, that can be undone. And as soon as somebody leaks, you know, uh, the, the nature and the extent of the conspiracy, then you can do something about it. But when you're talking about these deep-seated cultural attributes that have crept in, it's much harder to reverse it all. Those, those, that's much harder. So I, I say to people, I wish there was a conspiracy, but I'm afraid there isn't one. We've got a much more serious problem on our hands. Mm. And, and then the third thing I point out is that, <clears throat> you know, pe- people need to differentiate. A, a conspiracy entails some element of secrecy, and there's no secrecy in any of this. All of the elements that I mentioned to you are absolutely clear to anybody who wants to spend, you know, two minutes doing research on the, in, on the Internet. All of the parties here make their, their agendas very, very clear. They repeat them consistently. They propagate them in, in the form of, you know, outright propaganda and then softer sort of um, dressed up as academic literature. Um, so, you know, I say, no, this has got nothing to do with conspiracy. And mm-hmm. the attempt to call people who talk about these features of our culture cons- conspiracy theorists is really just a, a very naked smear campaign. You know, for, for me to sit here and say that there is extensive capture of our institutions, I'm making a statement of fact, and it's very easy to verify that. If you just go and look at the beneficiaries in South Africa, of organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization. That's all publicly available information. I'm not making this up or reporting something that I've discovered by doing private investigations or something like that. No, it's all out in the open. <laughs> that is absolutely true. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with the, the capture of, of academia and especially science. Science is no longer uh, critical thinking and uh, I have a hypothesis and your your job is to actually prove it wrong. It's now seeking uh, peer-reviewed consensus I and mean, consensus to me shouldn't even exist in the scientific vocabulary. It's, it's, it's not a word that should ever be around. And the idea of science is to challenge the, the hypothesis and the, and the narrative out there. Yet we are seeing um, a total capture of the scientific field and, and research centers through exactly, as you say, through the funding mechanisms there, thereof. And uh, another thing that we've seen emerge in, in, in modern times is, is the uh, development of computer-based models. I mean, that really, that, that makes no sense to me at all. You, you're now inputting inputting a, a hypothesis and in, inputting variables into a mo- into a model to serve a predetermined outcome you want this to represent this and then you'll design your model that way and we've seen this mistake being made so many times right at the beginning of this pan- of the covid pandemic there were outrageous predictions coming from from these models which have all proven to be to be to be incorrect Yet how how do we overcome that as, as, as the public? How do we, I mean, it's very difficult to fight emotionally driven fear uh, with, by presenting facts. So how, how do we overcome that? We're trying to present the facts, but it's being overridden by emotion. Is there a way to, to get the facts through to, to people? Charles Mackey said that men lose their minds 
as a herd and regain their senses one by one. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, so our, our strategy at Panda is to just try and build a sufficient minority of people who are presented with the facts in a, in a calm environment and to allow them to become influencers in their own domains. That's how you regain the community's senses. And our big effort in that regard was our hugely successful presentation at the BizNews conference um, last month. Um, that's available on Panda's Odyssey channel. Um, very easy to find if you go onto Odyssey, uh, the, the, the video service, and um, look for – it's also available directly from Panda, our website, pandata.org. Now, that, that presentation has now enjoyed more than a million views. It gained half a million views on YouTube within about four days before it was deplatformed there. And to your point about consensus science, which is a nonsense concept, um, we found that that presentation on, on YouTube enjoyed a hundred likes for every one dislike. And that's telling you a lot. There are a lot of people out there for whom that message resonated. And when you read the comment section, it was, it, was, it was no longer up, but when you read the comment section, what you really saw was that people were engaging with the material and understanding it, and that the criticism, the, the few critical responses that there were, were all of the kind that I described as kind of, you know, it's ad hominem attack. So <laughs> they would simply sit there and not engage with any of the ideas and propositions in the presentation. They would instead turn around and, and hurl labels, smears, such as anti-vax or COVID denier or conspiracy theorist. There's just an absolute refusal to engage with the actual sources and the data presented in the presentation. And, and that tells you everything you need to know about the poverty of the academic culture that we now face. Of consensus science, which is uh, one of the worst ideas you could ever imagine. Oh, without a doubt, yes. It's you know when 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 your opponent during a debate resorts to uh, ad, an ad hominem, then you know straight away that you've actually won the argument and you need to don't need to proceed any any further. Yeah. But <laughs> they are, Nick, we're going to take a, a quick break and then we'll discuss further after the break. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. Nick, we were, we were chatting really about the capture of um, you know, uh, educational institutions, especially in the tertiary fields, and I, I couldn't agree more. It is it is so obvious what what is going on. You, you bounced on um, critical theory in in certain certain areas, and that. Yeah, to me, critical theory really is based on nothing. It is based on intangible, unprovable facts and often just assumptions and opinions. However, that is the, the challenge you must be facing in trying to present facts and fact-based sources. Is how, What is your plan there? Is, is there any engagement with uh, institutions as such? How have they reacted to to Panda's presentation? Well, we long ago, you know, as far back as October, realized that there was no engagement to be done. Um, many journalists tried to set up debates between 
panda representatives and representatives of public health institutions and systematically those representatives declined debate. We ended up having one debate with a Canadian academic and one with a retired former Swazi uh, South African academic in London and you know what I discovered in those discussions was they weren't really on the other side of the equation they were sort of somewhere in the middle and what we've been looking for is to engage in a debate on the the various elements of the corona narrative with scientists who are advising government and perpetuating this whole story and there's just a, a constant refusal to engage and you know why it's because they, they their arguments will not stand up uh, to inspection. Um, that's the only reason. It's, you know, we, you, people can go and listen to the debates that I have had. Um, they're not rude. They're not personal. I listen carefully to um, my opponent in the debate and and uh, engage respectfully. So there's no excuse on that front. I'm not about to run into a situation where I start shouting at people and calling them names. But so they can't use that as an excuse. The only excuse, the only reason they're not debating is because they know very well that um, there are the ideas that motivate the policies that we have seen are not supported by the facts, are not supported by the theory, and are not supported by the guidelines that we had in place until February of last year, which guidelines were thrown out of the window in favour of these absolutely hairbrand and pseudo-scientific ideas about lockdowns and masks. Definitely. I've seen that throughout throughout the field. It is whenever you see a, a refusal to, to debate or engage, it, it definitely raises raises the question. But somehow the, the general public still believe that side that refuses to engage. If your argument is sound, then why wouldn't you want to want to engage on such a, an important matter? And you mentioned there also uh, when it comes to policy formation, I mean, we've seen the ridiculous introduction of um, the by Nkosazane Dilmini Zuma under the uh, under the uh, DMA regulations of a, a no compensate or a compensation scheme for vaccine injuries. Now, mm-hmm. what that does, what it proposes, is that um, in the case of a vaccine injury, the uh, the manufacturer is uh, granted immunity from any claims, and the that shifts the responsibility of the claim shifts to to the government, which is essentially the the taxpayer at the at the end of the day. Now, when you when you presented with with something like that, immediately you've got to go, okay, government is putting in place this kind of uh, claim policy for a vaccine injury, yet they are also rolling out these vaccines which are meant to save lives. There's a total contradiction. In, in their thinking there, if the vaccines are so safe then uh, and so desperately needed, then why are the manufacturers forcing governments to put these policies in place? There's, there's so many contradictions in throughout this whole thing that we really don't know who to believe anymore. What data do we trust? How did Where did government come through to this and uh, why are they following this? Is there any recourse at, at the end of this? Because it's got to come to an end at some time. Any recourse that we can take as, as the public or you as paying data to go to the government and say, well, we don't want to say we told you so, but we told you so, and here's what we're going to do and take action against you. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. but And I think it's important to step back and look at just how ridiculous that structure is. They're asking all the taxpayers in the country to take the vaccines and then to 
um, be in a position of having to take on government or sue government in the event that anything goes wrong. But government is paid for by the taxpayer. So it's kind of a, a form of self-insurance. You know, if, if, if it goes wrong, you're going to have to pay for your own claims, as it were. Um, because, you know, it, it, it really is quite unsound to be allowing the manufacturer to, manufacturer, uh, to avoid all downside from the product and retain all the upside. Um, it's a very bad institutional structure and it's a type of corruption really all of, all of, of its own. So the, the structure is absurd. We must all be see this clearly for what it is. Um, as to what we can do to prevent this coming to pass, um, I think many people feel that they're at a loss because the, you know, we, we've basically had a suspension of democratic process under the State of Disaster Act. We believe in inappropriate one. There's no excuse for not taking the renewal of the the Act to Parliament. It's just voiding democracy altogether. Um, and you know, to be trying to slip this in uh, under the under the the statute is is in our mind just a very unethical move to be making. Um, and we need to see, we should be seeing this for what it is, which is a, a blatant profiteering move by these, uh, big pharma companies. Absolutely. And I think in what, what my greatest fear around, around this is that if such a policy should be, should be introduced and especially under the Disaster Management Act, then there's the likelihood of us ever getting out of lockdown or seeing a end to this, the national state of disaster is very unlikely because this compensation scheme will run for many, many, many years. So there are many questions to, yeah. to be asked there. We're going to take a, a, a break there, Nick, and then we shall have some final words as we, as we end off. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. Hey, welcome back to 101.9 High FM. We're chatting with Nick Hudson from Panda about the importance of, of data and in sound decision making. Now, Nick, Panda, Panda is obviously not your full time, full time occupation and there are many resources and, and, uh, people there who do such a fantastic, fantastic work and Obviously, this this takes money. How are you funded? We're entirely crowdfunded at the moment, so we're not related to any political or in, or other institutions. Um, and it's really been amazing to see how positive the response has been to that March presentation. Um, we've seen a huge increase in interest all over the world. The presentation has been translated into many languages, and we're in, in the process of uh, providing the actual um, slide materials in foreign languages now, very carefully vetting the translations that have been sent our way to make sure that they say the same thing that we said in English. Um, and that presentation has really woken a lot of people up and they've realized that they need to support a group like Panda that is bringing the real truth to, to the public. Um, and I think many people are starting to wisen up and realize that they've been lied to consistently by governments and by these supranational organizations like the World Health Organization in a quite disgraceful way. And I think it won't take too much longer for that minority to become sufficient and to 
become a voice that governments and politicians can't afford to ignore. No, absolutely. And I think the the great reset is actually becoming the great awakening in 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 a sense uh, for those that are actually in, informed and um, if we want to get hold of you, do we go to uh, pandata.org, send you an email? Uh, if we want to donate to you, do we obviously do the same there on, on your website? Um, Nick, it's been a fantastic chat and really, really informative. And I hope it's been eye-opening for, for, for our listeners as well. And I, I absolutely recommend that they support you and your institution's great, great, great work. Thank you very much for coming on, Nick. It's a pleasure, Robin. Thanks very much.